Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect. And from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy. In order to form a more perfect union, first, we must be united. Georgia still has a decision to make. A decision between division and trickery. Or a leadership that defends your rights, your kids, your career, your community, and your right to vote in America. I stand here before you tonight as your Congresswoman-elect with many firsts behind my name. The first woman of color to represent our state in Congress. The first woman to wear a hijab to The first refugee ever elected to Congress. And listeners, uh, do you recognize those voices yet? How many of them? The first one was Mikey Sherrill, who is now Congresswoman-elect from the 11th District in New Jersey. That was followed by Stacey Abrams. The votes are still being counted in that Georgia gubernatorial race. And then Ilhan Omar, who won Minnesota's 5th Congressional District race, making her one of the first two women, Muslim women, ever elected to Congress because there were two last night, one from Michigan and Ilan Omar from Minnesota. And with that, we'll keep talking about the election results now with an all-star trio, Nancy Solomon, New Jersey Public Radio Managing Editor, Kai Wright, host of WNYC's podcast, The United States of Anxiety, and Gabe DiBenedetti. We had to bring in one outside reporter this morning, <laughs> national correspondent for New York Magazine. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Kai. Hi, Gabe. Good morning. Right. And Gabe, as the guest, you get the first question. And the last tweet I saw you send before the show uh, was a retweet from David Marinus, which said, looking at what happened last night from the perspective of someone who wrote about the GOP takeover of the House in 1994, I think people might be underestimating how much the world has changed because of the Democratic return to power. Do you want to reflect on what he might have in mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the parallels to 1994 are legion, but just to focus on 2018 now for a second, I think folks are still coming around to the idea that because it was sort of a divided result last night, uh, the world hasn't changed that much. That's wrong. Uh, With Democratic control of the House, the tenor out of Washington is going to change dramatically. Uh, Not only will the White House essentially stop trying to pass any real major legislation because they just know it's not going to go through the House, led by Nancy Pelosi or whoever is the speaker, Uh, but there are likely to be tons and tons of investigations into Donald Trump, into his cabinet, and that is going to make things very, very, very difficult for the president to try and get anything done. And the last point that I would make here on this is one thing that the president has really struggled to do over the last two years is have a natural foil. He's tried to go after the media. He's tried to go after Nancy Pelosi generally, Hillary Clinton, who's obviously not on the national stage anymore. With a Democratic-controlled House, he has an obvious 
villain here that he's going to use and use for political purposes as he hits the campaign trail for himself. So I think, yeah, not a big surprise here, but we can expect far more division. And he's not going to be happy that there's going to be so much digging into him. And Kai, I saw you wrote in an email exchange we had among (laughs) a few people here this morning that, and it's pertinent to the clips we just played, it's not just the what of Democrats taking control, but the who. The who, how. Yeah, I mean, and and here it's useful also to think about 94. I mean, we talk about 94 as a Republican wave, but it was very specifically a wave of Republican white men, both as voters and the types of people who came into office and who had a much more aggressive, bare-knuckled politic uh, uh, attitude about Congress. And it vastly, radically changed Congress, not just ideologically, but in the culture of the place. Same thing happened in 2010, where we had a very different kind of of, of makeup, the demographics of Congress changed. The demographics of Congress just changed dramatically. Uh, there are a hundred women, uh, at least I believe, in the Democratic caucus at this point. The Democratic caucus is overwhelmingly majority women and people of color. You have, as we heard in these clips, you have the two, first two Native American women, the first two Muslim women, two 29-year-old women. <laughs> uh, you know, you can go on and on and on. You have black women from districts where you never had them. This group of people is going to dramatically change what happens in Congress, not just because of their ideology, but because of who they are. Uh, and so we can look at the way things changed in 94 and 2010 and think similarly, what is, what, what's that going to mean uh, for, for the next couple of years uh, in Congress? So Nancy, for you as New Jersey editor, how much does any of what Gabe and Kai have been saying apply to the congressional results from New Jersey last night? 100% it applies. I mean, to, to work off of what Gabe just said, uh, you know, it's not just the the opposition to President Trump and the investigations, but let's just take one issue that's near and dear to many hearts in this region, the Gateway Tunnel. Uh, now we're going to have Nita Lowry on, on the uh, chairing the House Appropriations Committee. Democrat that, from Westchester. Thank you. That means that that funding goes into the budget. And it, at the very minimum, has to end up in the conference report, which then takes 60 votes in the Senate to get it out of there. So um, that's something very tangible. And so I think, you you know, we really can't overstate the amount of change that occurred on all of these levels. And, you know, and then, you know, to what Kai said about, you know, all the different, you know, people, the diversity, but also just how historic this is in for New Jersey to see these long, long time Republican districts flip Democratic. Um, you know that's tremendous. I mean, we're t- you know we're talking about you have to go back to 1914 to get to a time when there were only uh, th- less than three Republicans representing the state, and that was a very different Republican <laughs> Party. And um, they, my other fun fact to tell that I love is that uh, you know in the last 100 years. There's only been one Democrat that represented the 7th District, the Leonard Lance District, that just flipped blue to Tom Malinowski. So, and that was for five years. So, um, you know, this is enormous change. Listeners, our phones are open as we range wide on the election results in this segment with Nancy Solomon, Kai Wright, and Gabe Benedetti. So our phones are open to range wide for any reactions or questions about yesterday's results and what comes next, 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. So let's look around the country at some of the most interesting and consequential results. Kai, our email chain this morning included your thoughts on not an election, 
but a referendum yeah. in the state of Florida. Want to talk about that and its significance? It may. I, I argue it's certainly one of the most important stories out of last night. It might be the most most important story. You know, Florida overwhelmingly approved uh, an amendment that restored the voting rights of somewhere between one million and one point five million uh, voters who had lost their rights because they had been convicted of felonies. They've served their time. Uh, that does not include people who committed murders and people who committed some uh, violent sex crimes. And so the exact number of who's going to be re-enfranchised is unclear. But if we're in the ballpark of a million, uh, first off, that's 20 percent of the black of, of, of black of eligible black voters. So 20 percent um, are, are affected by this. Uh, as we have seen last night. An election in Florida is rarely decided by more than a hundred thousand oh, votes. Boy. And the breaking news this morning, and I'll, um, you know, you guys weigh in on this, um, with Bill Nelson apparently having lost his Senate seat to Republican Rick Scott. Nelson is calling for a recount. That's how close that is. I mean, both Nelson and Gillum would be in office easily uh, if this election had been held with those voters uh, allowed to vote. Um, if, if just 10% of those people turn out, it dramatically changes the politics of Florida, which then changes the politics of the country. And there's which a question- also of, then changes the potential outcome in 2020 in the presidential race. Right. Trump winning Florida was essential in 2016. It's often it's essential to almost any candidate, you know, and um, you know, and then there will be copycat efforts in other states, uh, and so and and I believe I saw somewhere I, I I don't know this is true, but I believe it is the largest expansion of voting rights since we lowered the voting age. Mm. Uh, it was a it's a remarkable thing that occurred, uh, and it's very important. You want to weigh in, Gabe, on Florida and uh, this uh, potential Senate recount? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Most people uh, were surprised, most people looking at Florida from the outside were surprised to see both Republicans uh, in the gubernatorial race and in the Senate race come out on top, though, by slim margins. Um, and most folks, e even in, in Washington and in Florida, don't expect to see Nelson now come out on top in this recount. But it really does just underscore how close Florida uh, is. And, and to Kai's point, how much a sea change this new uh, reenfranchisement could be uh, for all of these voters. And I think one thing that has not really been internalized by a lot of folks in the last few hours is what a change this could be. And a lot of other results last night could be for the 2020 elections, particularly the presidential election. Florida, as we very well know, is a state that, you know, determines what happens in presidential elections year after year after year. But it wasn't just that. One thing that I was watching very closely is the results in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Now, these are three states that essentially handed the presidency to Donald Trump in 2016 in big surprise flips. Last night, all of those states elected a Democratic senator and a Democratic governor, and that included uh, ousting Scott Walker, the very famous or infamous, depending on how you feel about him, <laughs> uh, governor in Wisconsin. So that's a pretty significant shift back to Democrats, and that augurs something bigger happening in 2020. It means that the map is not what we necessarily thought it was going to look like. Nancy, were you watching turnout in New Jersey as a microcosm of the nation? People were wondering if younger voters were really going to turn out in bigger numbers this time, or if that's always an illusion leading up to actual election days, also Latinos. Yeah, and I'm afraid I don't have the breakdown of who voted because we didn't have access to exit polls, but I have the actual, I do have the turnout numbers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and going out to the polls yesterday, Everyone I spoke to was convinced that there was higher turnout than a presidential election. I don't know why it felt that way. It felt that way to me. It felt that way to the poll workers. It felt that way to the voters. And yet, 
Indeed, um, it, the turnout was high for a midterm, but it did not eclipse presidential turnout. So what you had in district by district, so the highest turnout is in the one district that hasn't yet even been determined yet, the Tom MacArthur, Andy Kim race in the third congressional district. Um, that that's, had, that's still being counted. That is still being counted. That had the highest turnout per congressional district in the state with 51.5%. And then the Malinowski-Lance race and the Mikey Sherrill race had Malinowski's 50% and uh, Mikey Sherrill 48%. So that far eclipses the general uh, like 32% midterm turnout that we usually see in New Jersey, uh, but doesn't get up to the presidential numbers. But you can see there was clearly for a midterm, a lot of engagement. And for those in northern New Jersey or New York or Connecticut who don't know Tom MacArthur, Congressman Republican from part of the southern part of the state, uh, he was really in the Democrats' national radar because he almost single-handedly was responsible for putting pre-existing conditions coverage at risk in the Obamacare repeal, right? Right, and that's what it is hurting him and why he does not have a win uh, next to his name yet. He may still, but it's uh, an incredibly cr close race. There are there He's up by 2,400 votes. They stopped... Last night they stopped around 10, 10.30, and now today they'll count the paper ballots. It could take all week because the mail-in ballots have a couple days to come in. If they're postmarked by yesterday, they still count. Um, there are 16,000 paper ballots to be counted. Um, so we don't know which way that's gonna go. Um, and if, if, he, if he goes down, that, you know, he is the Trump Republican in New Jersey for in terms of the congressional delegation. So that's that's pretty big. Let's take a phone call. Jack in New Paltz, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jack. Uh, hi, Brian. Uh, hi, everybody. So um, we are all jumping up and down and celebrating Antonio Delgado, um, who beat John Faso last night. Um, we all, all of my friends and I, you know, thought it was unlikely um, because this is a very rural area. It kind of goes from Woodstock in the north to New Paltz in the south and then stretches out to the west. Um, and it, it, as much as I kind of lived in my bubble, I, I didn't really think Delgado would do it. Um, just because there's, you know, it's, <laughs> and I, I hate to say this, but there's a lot of white people here who would not ordinarily vote for a black person, I think. Um, and so just, we're overjoyed. I'm surprised, I'm happy, um, you know, and just, and I wanted to let, I just wanted to check in from up here, yes. a little bit north of the city with, with you. Jack, thank you so much. Jack and Newport's overjoyed, almost speechless about Antonio Delgado, um, Latino, now elected, defeating, long-term Republican. Those of you who don't know John Faso's name, or like, I know that name, but I'm not sure from where. He <laughs> ran for governor as a Republican. He ran for controller as a Republican. He's been a Republican leader, and he was turned out in that Hudson Valley and a little bit, a little bit north and west of the Hudson Valley, too, um, district by Delgado, who was a Harvard-trained lawyer, a Rhodes Scholar, but Faso was trying to... Um, tag him as a uh, a rapper <laughs> engaging in hateful lyrics Kai big yeah, deal I mean, there was big deal yeah, election. absolutely I, my question for Jack was would have been you know I, what, he may still be here Jack you still here Jack you there 
Yeah, go ahead, Kurt. Jack, I wonder how many people in, you mentioned your bubble, uh, how many people in your bubble um, voted or door knocked or got engaged in a way that they normally wouldn't in that district? Um, surprisingly, very, very many people. Yeah. Um, so I'm sitting in the parking lot of a grocery store in, in New Paltz right now. From where I'm sitting, I can see... <laughs> People have anti-Hillary signs up here still, um, and you know, like I don't personally watch Fox News or MSNBC. Um, I kind of just, you know, I listen to the show basically, um, <laughs> and um, I, I, it, it's just surprising. Like I, I, I thought and expected that Delgado would win, uh, but. Now that he has, and I'm so like Brian said, I'm kind of speechless and overjoyed. It's it's just in, in a way, it's a bizarre and unlikely outcome that I'm surprised and happy with. I think the race it reflects. There's a couple of the two big dynamics for the Democratic Party across the country. You know, really were uh, one running the uh, the right candidate in the right place, uh, setting aside this debate about whether the, the, the party went left or right. I, I think that it misses the point. Um, it was running the right candidate in the right place. A lot of that we see in Jersey that Nancy's been covering. And then it's been expanding the electorate in other places um, where they normally just did not compete. Um, and in some places that led to surprising wins like uh, Delgado. And in some places it, re- it led to... Un- unprecedented uh, levels, uh, unprecedentedly close elections uh, in places like Georgia and uh, and Texas. And so I think those are the two narratives that really emerge from this for Democrats. Jack, thank you so much. I love the idea of you calling into talk radio because you're feeling speechless. I think that's a first. <laughs> and, and I appreciate it. And we hear the emotion. And we'll continue in a minute. Stay with us. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. For so many black people, The Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Today, voters across Kansas came together. We chose to put people before politics. From the beginning, this campaign has been built on bringing new leaders to the table and new voices to the table. This. And I am so honored to stand here today knowing that I will fill that role for our community here in January. What? Politicians from Kansas leading into a segment on The Brian Lehrer Show? Yes. The first one was Laura Kelly, who's going to be the governor of Kansas, which has been such a conservative state uh, at the state level recently. And she beat the infamous, a real boogeyman for Democrats, Chris Kobach. You know that name? As... um, 
the guy who was willing to accept Trump's premise that there was all this election fraud that helped Hillary Clinton win the popular vote in 2016. Chris Kobach is that guy. Chris Kobach lost in his bid for governor of Kansas to Democrat Laura Kelly. The other voice was Sharice Davids, who is going to Congress as the first um, as one of two first Native American women elected to Congress this year. The other one is Deb Holland, who won from New Mexico. Sharice Davids, the first um, Native American woman along with her. And also, I believe, first LGBT uh, member of Congress from Kansas. So two of the first from last night. As we continue with Nancy Solomon, New Jersey Public Radio Managing Editor, Kai Wright, host of WNYC's podcast, The United States of Anxiety, and Gabe DiBenedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine. And let's take another call. Doug in Trenton, you're on WNYC. Hello, Doug. Hey, good morning. In a similar parallel, Doug Sattel, S-I-T-T-E-L, on Google, you clip up, uploads, play all on YouTube, you scroll to the last box, caption, drive this to 14 minutes. The judge says, if you talk, you're going to jail. I was holding a tape of him asking for 10 grand in my hand. He said, I have ironclad proof you took a bribe. He says, then you're going to jail. Uh, they're holding me at Trenton Psych. In a blue backdrop, says police in white in my YouTube at 1630, the chief of police admit he fired me from HSBC and was coming in and out of my apartment trying to steal those tapes. Doug, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, let you go and maybe give your information to people on the air. Um, I don't know exactly what that was, but he had told our screener that he wanted to talk about Stacey Abrams. Um, <laughs> so, um, Gabe DiBenedetti? I can talk about Stacey Abrams. <laughs> Would you? Yes, absolutely. Over or not over? Uh, it's not over yet, but things certainly aren't looking good for Stacey Abrams. She uh, has said now that, you know, she's waiting for the final votes to come in and hoping for a recount. It's very, very close at this point, and that wasn't the case for all of last night, but finally votes are coming in. From in and around Atlanta, uh, essentially she is hoping for Brian Kemp, uh, the Secretary of State who she's running against, for his numbers to slip under 50 percent. Then there will be a recount. Uh, this has obviously always been a stretch race. Georgia's a pretty conservative place, though Democrats have been feeling better and better about it. But Abrams is, is in for the fight here. She's not one to, to give up anytime soon. We should know more in the coming uh, day or two. But if this does become a recount, I think we all need to prepare for really a political circus of the first order. Uh, the whole world is going to convene on Atlanta, and Abrams is going to have the support of essentially the entire National Democratic Party, and Brian Kemp has no bigger ally than Donald Trump. Well, and to put a finer point on it, I mean, the, a big part of the Abrams campaign uh, was preparing for this moment. I mean, they have built a, a huge apparatus to to expecting to finish this race in court. And I still think that is probably where it's going to end. I mean, over voter suppression or what? Yes. Um, and over what votes get counted. I mean, where and so where we stand is there's about 85,000 vote difference. Last I saw, you know, there's 25,000 votes. If, if, if Abrams picks up 25,000 votes, uh, that brings Kemp down below 50% and forces a runoff. Uh, and there are, uh, depending on, you know, whether or not, we don't know because the Secretary of State's office, who is Brian Kemp, hasn't said, but according to the Abrams campaign, they believe that there are 27,000 votes in Gwinnett and Cobb County alone, which are the suburbs around Atlanta, which are Democratic country at this point. Um, and that all told, they believe there's about 100,000 votes out there still to be counted. Mostly are mail-in absentee ballots, provisional ballots that were cast yesterday during the chaos in Gwinnett County. It was one of the flashpoints nationally in terms of people not being able to vote. So 
the, the the number of votes we're talking about is divided is 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 the the the, dif- the difference in this race is separated by the number of votes that are contested in this race as yeah. well, and that could get very very ugly. So get comfortable if you're watching that race, Kai. I wonder if you also had your eye on Florida in a similar respect. We had Congressman Hakeem Jeffries in last hour, and he was pointing out. Uh, a result that he doesn't believe, which is that 19% of African-American women voted against Andrew Gillum for governor, and that makes him wor- wonder about the integrity of the vote count in Florida. Is this on your radar screen? It's a, I, haven't, I, haven't been, I haven't looked it up, and I've heard that number as well. It's a very odd number. <laughs> um, Gabe, maybe yeah. you have some. Well, all I would say is that we should be very cautious about exit polls in Florida. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if past is any prologue here, we know that those numbers change a lot over the coming days and weeks here. So, yeah, I would be very skeptical about that, too. I spent a lot of time covering and around Andrew Gillum, and certainly this was a that that was a demographic that you would not expect to break away from him in that way. I mean, and, the only the thing I could surmise would ahead. be if there's some kind of, you know, counting of Afro-Latinos, uh, Haitian, conservative Haitians are sure. conservative Afro-Latinos. Maybe, you know, right. but it's... Uh, Afro-Cubans. That's a, Afro-Cubans, uh, but it's right. a strange number. Since our last caller from New Jersey turned out to be a troll... We'll give someone else a chance. <laughs> Jim in Red Bank here on WNYC. Hi, Jim. Yes, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask uh, the guests, particularly Mr. Benedetti, to weigh in on the potential for uh, where things might go with regard to health care uh, and several different elements of that. One is the fact that so many Republicans had come out and pledged uh, to protect sing- um, uh pre-existing conditions coverage um, and whether there's any potential for uh, bipartisan uh, shoring up of the Affordable Care Act. Conversely, I also wanted to raise that there is still this lawsuit pending. Um, Most legal experts have uh, claimed it's a stretch, but it is a Republican judge. I believe it might even be a Trump-appointed judge, so you never know what's going to happen. And notwithstanding the human costs if he were to weigh in and uh, take away pre-existing conditions Mm -hmm. by his ruling could that um you know could that actually help the democrats now that the republicans are on record uh pledging uh, you know their support for pre-existing conditions thank you gabe well there are obviously a lot of parts to this question. Before we jump in on the pre-existing conditions question and, and whether there's going to be some sort of legislative fix, uh, I think it's important to note that a number of states actually uh, ex- voted to expand Medicaid last night, and that was a huge shift that uh, we had not anticipated in the, the degree to which it happened. So that was one thing that a lot of Democrats are very excited about. As to the question on Capitol Hill, I would be very, very, very skeptical of the idea that there's going to be some sort of broad bipartisan consensus on anything, let alone health care. As, as has been pretty well covered over the last few weeks, health care was absolutely the number one issue for Democrats and in the closing days for a lot of Republicans all over the country. And while they did say a lot of the same words in terms of protecting pre-existing conditions, there's a huge question in, ter- in terms of what that actually means once, you know, once the rubber hits the road. And I think one of the important things to remember here is that Nancy Pelosi, who again is likely to be the Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell have basically nothing in common and have very few incentives to agree on something like this. So are there some senators who might sit down and agree to talk about how to make some sort of short-term fix? Absolutely. But in terms of a long-term uh, solution here, I really would not be confident. As we begin to run out of time, 
<clears throat> Let me do some uh, a kind of rapid-fire round-robin of some callers and give you each 30 seconds. Jane in Missoula, Montana. Hey, Jane, thanks for calling in. Hello from New York. What's your headline? I just wanted to talk about the Senate race here in Montana. John Tester is uh, within a few thousand votes of Matt Rosendale, and we have tens of thousands of votes outstanding, and yet it's not getting any national news. Um, in in the way that a lot of these races that are far less close are. And uh, I just think that it's worth talking about what's happening in Montana, given that uh, it's a state that Trump won by 20 points, and yet Tester did not fall in the same way that, that Donnelly or, or uh, uh, Heidi Heitkamp Heidi Camp did. Jane, thank you so much. Maggie in Sunnyside, originally from Kansas. Hi, Maggie. You're on WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having this great conversation today. I just wanted to call in. I felt really inspired to just give my two cents about Kansas being a lifelong Kansan. I feel like this vote against Kobach was so inspired by Kansans feeling very fed up with Sam Brownback's gutting the Kansas economy and really making us an experiment about trickle-down economics. Um, and with Cherise David's um, winning in the district I grew up in, I'm just so proud of Kansas. It's a very rooted state that has progressive roots, and our motto, our state motto is Ad Astra Praspera, which is to the stars through difficulty. So I'm just very proud today because I feel like we are reaching back to our roots and showing our vote and power of democracy in a way that makes us better. Through the stars through difficulty. Awesome, Maggie. Thank you very much. Susan in Jersey City, you're on WNYC. Hey, Susan. Hi, Brian. How are you? Good. So a few things I wanted to, um, was my two cents, um, positive news out of Florida is that the first Iranian-American woman has been elected to the state legislature, which as an Iranian-American woman, I'm super excited about. Uh, Iranian-American? Iranian-American young woman um, defeated a Republican, Akshami, I believe her name, her last name is. She was actually on the cover of Time as well. Um, and also, I just want to point the fact, even though I identify as Iranian-American, I appear as white. And um, the fact that 49, I'm sorry, 50% white women voted for Cruz, over, I mean, uh, yeah, for Cruz over O'Rourke in Texas is, is atrocious. And it just, I just feel like we need... As, as white women, we need to just do better than that and just not assume that other people are going to pick up the slack. And my last two cents is, like your previous caller regarding Delgado, is I also am kind of shocked at the silence that my home district, the 11th district where I grew up, finally has a Democratic representative since 1985 when I was four years old. So and that's Mikey I'm Sharon. super amazed and excited about that. Yes, so that's my thank you very much for those eight <laughs> cents. And since uh, your phone dropped out at just that key moment, the number is 59% that you couldn't hear listeners of white women in Texas, if Susan's number is accurate, 59% of white women in Texas voted for Ted Cruz, not Beto O'Rourke. And finally, Annette in Laurelton, you're on WNYC. Hi, Annette. Hi. If, uh, Brian, if one thing I'm happy about is that uh, during the rallies, uh, he's constantly, um, uh, you know, disrespected Maxine Waters with low IQ. So I'm hoping that she uh, now becomes the, the cha- chairperson of the Financial and Banking Committee. Thank that you. That would make me very, very happy. Annette, thank you so much. Gabe, uh, Maxine Waters? coming chair of the Finance and Banking Committee? Yep, that's the expectation. Uh, she is 
It's funny. She's not someone who, if you ask most Democrats a few weeks ago, or rather a few months ago, if not a few years ago, would be a face of the Democratic Party. But because of the way that Donald Trump has demonized her, now she is, and she will be very, very powerful on Capitol Hill. Nancy, we haven't yet stated the name, I think, all morning, Bob Menendez. No, we have not. (laughs) Well, very early this morning we did. Well, on this show. Yes, not on this show. Uh, He won, and he won in the face of... Uh, problems with his federal corruption trial, which ended in a hung jury. He won in the face of being outspent three to one by a pharmaceutical executive who poured more than $30 million of his own money into the campaign. Um, And, you know, it's, I think it speaks uh, to not just his tenacity, but the tenacity of the Democratic Party machine machines plural in New Jersey and when they come when they come in behind you they get out their votes Nancy Solomon New Jersey Public Radio Managing Editor Kai Wright host of WNYC's podcast The United States of Anxiety do you have an episode about to drop Uh, we are trying to get it done (laughs) but yes we are gonna look at what happened here and think about uh, uh, the future with Dolores Huerta United States of Anxiety wherever you get your podcasts and Gabe DiBenedetti national correspondent for New York Magazine thank you for joining the table thank you thanks for listening to Politics Brief if you want more go to wnyc.org slash election